Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm doing part two and concluding my little mini-series called When the Tough Gets Going. Not to be confused when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's a different thing. We don't know any tough people. We're talking about when things get tough and then continue to get tough and get even tougher. And what do we do about it? And last week we looked at that and we discovered this. You didn't like it. But I said things usually get worse before they get better. Wasn't that a great message? And uh, But we found out that we had a promise from Psalm 34. And it was this, that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all it delivers them out of them all. And you know, that sounds a little bit like a Murphy's Law kind of a promise, but what are you going to do? How many of you know Murphy's Law? How many of you lived it in the last week? I know I have recently. <laughs> when, when, you know Murphy's Law. Nothing's as easy as it looks. Everything takes longer than you think. And if something can go wrong, it will go wrong, and usually at the worst time. And I know you're thinking, that Murphy was one seriously negative dude. Actually, he wasn't. Let me tell you the story of Edward Murphy Jr. He was actually a rocket scientist. Did you know that? He worked for the, the U.S. Air Force, and his job was a safety engineer. Here's a picture of him. He was a safety engineer to make sure the rockets and the airplanes didn't blow up. And his, his approach to things was always consider the worst-case scenario. So when you look at it that way, maybe you should be happy for Murphy's Law, because next time you go on a rocket ship, it might not blow up. So I have this little story for you, Murphy's Law kind of a story. So there's this guy, he gets engaged, and he hasn't told his parents yet, hasn't even introduced the girl to them yet. And so he phones up his mom and says, Mom, I want to bring over my fiance. I'm getting married. I want you to meet her. So when he shows up, he actually shows up with his fiance and her two friends because they happen to be together that day. So he says, Mom, I think we'll play a little game. Why don't we do this is we'll sit down and chat for 10 minutes or so and see if you can guess which one I'm going to marry. And she says, sure, I'm in. And so they talk for about 10 minutes, and finally he can't wait. And he says, so, Mom, which one do you think I'm marrying? He said, she says, well, it's easy. You're marrying the one on the right. She, he says, that's amazing. How did you know? She said, well, it was easy. I've only known her for 10 minutes, and I already don't like her. <laughs> you say, is that a Murphy's Law joke? I don't know, but I was going to tell it whether you fit in or not to the message. So here's what we're going to do in the, when the tough gets going. We're going to take this to another level. And I'm going to take you to a verse that you all know. I'm sure you all know of it. You've heard it many times. It's kind of one of those ones you love to hate. But it is such a powerful and instructive passage. And it's in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. As soon as I start reading it, you'll recognize it. And here's what it is. We know that all things work together for good. For them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's it. That's the whole message today on this one little verse. And we're going to workshop it, kind of like I did with Psalm 34 last week. And I'm going to ask you some questions, and you give me the answer. So the first question is this. What things work together for good? All. All things. It says all things work together for good. It doesn't say all good things. Don't misread that. It does not say all good things work together. It says all things. So that means good things, bad things, very bad things, and very, very bad things. They all work together for good. Now, second question. For whom do they all work together? Who? For those who love God and 
are called according to his purpose. See, all things just work, don't work together for good for everybody and anybody just because you love you know, God. You have to be love God and be called to his, according to his purpose and you have to press into it and you have to hang on to it and you have to recognize that things can work together for good if you will put God's purpose for your life first. And I know this is sort of a challenge for anybody that's ever gone through tragedy in life, which is probably every single one of us. I mean real tragedy. You look at this and you say, I don't know how this could possibly work together for good. I don't know how this uh, horrible thing that happened in our life could possibly end up turning around for good. And that's where the third question comes. And you might not be able to answer the question, but how do things work together for good? How do all things work together for good? And the answer to that question is a lot to do with that word, work together. And the Greek word for work together is synergai, which is our English word where we get synergy. And we all know what synergy is. Synergy is when other, different things come together and they, are you ready for this? Work together for good. That's what synergy is. And so here's what I want you to think about for a moment. Bad things don't just have bad, uh, good outcomes. Bad things have bad outcomes. Would you agree with that? Most of the time, bad things have bad outcomes. But what happens with these bad things that have bad outcomes is they work together all things, not all bad things, not all good things, all the things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they work together for good. So what happens for those who love God and are called according to this purpose, he takes those bad things in your life, he works them together with other things, synergizes them with other things, weaves them into his plan and purpose for your life, and they work together for good. Are you following this so far? And so you look at scripture, you see it time and time again. We have David, who for eight years had his father-in-law trying to hunt him down and kill him. I don't know how long you, how you get along with your in-laws, this isn't very good. And we have Joseph, we talked about him last week, 13 years as a slave and in prison, and yet somehow God took all of these things. Just like David became king, Joseph became prime minister of Egypt and set his people free. Why? Uh, or, or at least saved them from the famine is the way I want to word it. And why did that happen? He took the bad things, wove it into the big picture, and somehow it worked. Moses spent... 40 years on the backside of the desert. For Moses, not a good thing. But God used it for him to go and bring his people out of captivity. We have Jesus. He went to the cross. You know, for Jesus going to the cross, for us, that was a good thing. For him, it wasn't so good. How many of you know that he didn't want to do it? He considered it sort of a bad moment, something a bad experience he didn't really want to go through. Garden of Gethsemane, he begged God. He said, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, he loved God. It was called according to his purpose. And him going to the cross and him suffering that bad thing was the best thing that ever happened to us. And so when we look at life, we have to imagine that if we love God and are called according to his purpose, he's somehow going to take these situations in our life that don't make any sense and somehow turn something good into them. So here's an example of this. So after the Second World War, there was this, tor or sorry, during the Second World War, there was in the South Pacific, there was a torpedo hit the ship, the ship sank, and uh, it's presumed that everybody died in this, except for one man. He was able to grab a hold of some flotsam, and he managed to float up on this tiny little deserted island, you know, just like the old jokes of what it would be like being on this deserted island. And there was really, like, no people there. There was virtually no food. There was almost nothing there. He had to figure out a way to survive. 
So he said, Lord, help me with the situation. And he just started doing what he could. He gathered sticks and branches and he built a hut and he got shells and he came up with innovative ways to create a place to live because he knew he might be waiting there for a long time. So he pulled a Robinson Crusoe and he established this little life and he eked out a living and he scrounged for food and he had to collect water. There was no fresh water. It just went on and on and on and on. And after several weeks, he had managed to do reasonably well and survive on this deserted island. And then what happened one morning, he created a fire to cook his his meal, rubbing two sticks together, you know how how they do it, and got the fire going, and then he went out and searched for whatever little meager amount of food he could find. On his way back down the beach, he discovers that the fire had caught the shack on fire, and everything he had worked for for all those weeks was lost and gone. He was so distraught and so discouraged, he threw himself to the sand, and he beat the sand with his fist, and he cried out, Why God? Why God? Why God? And just in exhaustion and despair, he fell asleep on the beach. An hour later, he was awakened by a sound, and he woke up and looked, and there was a a tender, a small boat came up on the beach. And these sailors came out of the boat and he was surprised and he could see in the distance a ship where the tender had come from and he couldn't believe his good fortune that he was being saved. He said, how was it that you came to this tiny island to look for her survivor? They said, we came because we saw your fire signal. And see, a lot of times we don't recognize that God uses these terrible situations in our life to create something good. And so here's what my thesis is for today is that we do not succeed in life despite our adversities, but we succeed in life because of them. I know that's hard to believe, but if we would begin to believe that, if we would begin to believe that God could take our our blunders, our mistakes, our failures, I'm convinced there's actually no real failures in life. They're just failed attempts, and they're just looking for a place to succeed. And we could begin to believe that God could take even our mistakes and turn them around for good. That's what the verse is telling us. All things work together for good. So here's a business story you all know, or at least you're going to know by the time I've finished it. So in 1968, there's this chemist. He's working for the 3M company, and he's been charged with the task of creating a super glue. Now, in 1968, there was no super glue, no Gorilla Glue, no crazy glue. This was his job to make the super glue. And so he was formulating, and he came up with what he thought was going to work, and it turned out to be completely feeble. It wasn't super glue, it was silly glue. And, it, and whatever he glued together, it just fell, he could just pull it right apart. It was ridiculous. And so anyway, he just hung on to it. Now, the other chemists, they mocked him for this. And of course, they laughed at him, and you know those chemists, say they're always kidding with each other, you know what they're like. And uh, he said, no, no, this is just a solution waiting for a problem. So his name was Spencer Silver, and for years and years he hung on to this. He said, one day this is going to become useful. Well, he had a fellow chemist there that worked with him. His name was Art Fry, and he was a choir director at his church. And every Thursday night, he would go down to the church building, he'd have choir practice, and he would tell his choir people, now we're going to do this hymn, and this hymn, and this hymn, and he got them to stick a little piece of paper between each page, so when they were singing and doing their songs, they could quickly flip to each one of the songs. But inevitably what happened between Thursday night and Sunday morning, the pieces of paper fell out of the pages, and there they were flipping through their hymnals, trying to find the right page to sing. And he thought, there's got to be a better solution. 
So he went back to work on Monday morning and he went to, to his friend Spencer Silver and he says, you know that silly, useless glue you created? He says, I got an idea. What if we put it on a piece of paper and we could put it in and use it as a bookmark? And the two of them thought about it. And he said, do you have any paper around here? The only paper they had was yellow. That's all they had in the shop. So they grabbed yellow. You know where this is going now, don't you? And so they went and got this yellow paper and they put this silly glue on it and he took it and it worked like a charm. And of course, I am telling you the history of the post-it note. Everybody got it. And here we have Art Fry. He loved to put those things. You go on the line, you'll see him in every picture. He's got a post-it note in his forehead because he had this great idea how to use this. What everybody thought was a failure turned out to be one of the greatest successes that 3M ever had, earning them, are you ready for this? One billion dollars. And so what we need to recognize is that God's willing to take our mistakes and our blunders and he's willing to weave them together for good. So I'm going to give you a little way, because how does that work? How does it work? How do all things work together? So we're going to throw it up on the screen. Here it is. Number one, attitude is everything. Number two, action is essential. And number three, achievement is eventual. So the first one is this. Attitude is everything. If you've hung around me any amount of time, you'll know that's one of my mantras, and I have a few of them, but this is one of them. My staff all knows this. They all know that attitude is everything. And you know what? We'll overlook a lot of blunders, a lot of mistakes, even egregious mistakes. As long as they will have a good attitude about things, we'll probably let it slide. Now, for the record, staff, those of you who are listening, this is not a dare or a challenge <laughs> to see how far you can take this. <laughs> Just saying. But when we look in scripture, we find that out that it's really true that attitude truly is everything. And I'll give you a story you all know from scripture, and we rarely think of it in terms of attitude, but it is. So it's the story of the children of Israel when they first arrived for the very first time in the book of Judges at the promised land. They don't know what's in the promised land. They know it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but they have no idea what's there. So Moses decides he's going to send the 12 spies, one spy from each of the tribe. And he gets these 12 men and he gives them their assignment and off they go. And they're gone for, for several days and then they return. And of course, they have a bunch of grapes so big that they have to carry it on a stick. And they've seen land that was truly flowing with milk and honey, but there was also something else in the land who remembers what it was. It was giants. So then these men stood up and gave the report to the people. And the 10 of the 12, they stood up and they said, there's giants in the land and we are like grasshoppers in our own sight and also in theirs. And then only the two of them, Joshua and Caleb, and they stood up and they said, let us go up at once for we are well able to overcome it. Now here's my question for you. These 12 people, these two groups, the 10 and the 2, they all had the same experiences. They all went at the same time. My question for you is, did they all see the same thing? All 12 of them saw the same thing, did they not? They had the same experience. They saw the same things. They witnessed exactly the same thing. So they came back with two different reports. So what is the one singular difference between these two groups of people? Their attitude. One group said, we can't do it. One group said, we will be overcome. The other group said, let us go in at once, for we are well able to overcome. You see, this is what attitude is all about. But see, here's the problem. 
We live in a time of such negativity today. You know they've done some research on this. I don't know if you know this. And they've determined that all pessimists actually have the same blood, blood type. Did you know this? Do you know what? You know what yeah, you, yeah, you got it. Be negative. Be negative. You got it. <laughs> you got it. And I don't know if you recognize this, but we kind of live in a culture of victimhood these days. Everybody's a victim. Have you noticed that? Do you know that there are no guilty people in jail? Not one person is guilty in jail. They're all just, it's all just bad luck or bad police work or a bad judge or bad this, bad that. It's never their fault. You know, they had a hard upbringing. You know, they were born on the wrong side of the tracks. Or, and, and we have this culture of victimhood. Everybody's got an excuse as to why they have failed and why they have not succeeded. And every single night you turn on the television and you see the same thing. Somebody whining about something, about how the world has conspired against them and the government needs to do this or so-and-so needs to do that. And I'm thinking, if that's what you want, if you want to go through life as a victim, you go right ahead, but my guarantee for you is that you will have abject failure in your life, because that's what victimhood produces. And we have to decide, are we going to be a victim or a victor? Speaking of victor, I want to tell you a story. And if you've read my book, A Greater Purpose is in that book, so some of you will recognize this story. But it's about a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. It's actually in his name. And he was an Austrian Jew in the Second World War. And the Nazis came in to his town, and they took a bunch of people captive, and they killed a bunch of people. And they killed his mother and his father. They killed his wife, and they killed his children. And they took him, and they took him into a prison camp, a concentration camp, and they stripped them naked. You, you, you've seen those pictures and heard those stories of what they did with these, these Jews in, in the Second World War. Stripped him naked. And he writes in a book, he wrote a book, it was called Man's Search for Meaning. Here's a picture of Viktor Frankl, by the way. And he wrote this, wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And in it he says, and he describes the lowest moment in his life. And the lowest moment in his life was that time when he arrived at that concentration camp. He had lost his entire family, everything he had, his home, his business, everything he had, gone. And not only that, he was stripped naked, standing in front of his captors. And as he was standing there, one of the guards spotted his wedding band on his finger, and he came over with some tin snips and cut the ring off. And that was his lowest moment. And he had a thought in that moment. And the thought was this. You can take my family, and you can take my wife and my children. You can strip me of my clothes and my dignity. You can take my freedom from me, but there is one thing you cannot take, and that is the power for me to decide how I will react to how you treat me. You see, that's the power of attitude. And he later went on, he survived obviously the Holocaust. He went on to become a very successful and eminent psychiatrist. He wrote this book and many others, Man's Search for Meaning. And his writings became the basis for post-war psychology. And he believed that everyone has the power of self-determination in their life. And they have to decide whether they're going to be a victim or a victor. Now, of course, that doesn't exist anymore, does it? Everybody's a victim now. We don't recognize that we can determine in ourselves how we are going to respond to every situation in life. So I'm going to tell you a Canadian story, a story you all know, and it's the story of Rick Hansen, Man in Motion. How many of you know this story? 
And it's one of my favorite stories because I kind of watched it play out. Here's the thing. Rick Hansen and myself, we're the same age. We're born just a few weeks apart in the same year. And I remember when this whole thing played out. When he was 15 years old, he was in an accident, and uh, he got a spinal cord injury. He's paralyzed for the rest of his life from his waist down. And uh, in 1980, you all remember this, he watched, as, as Can- Canadians all did, he watched the story of Terry Fox as he attempted to run across the nation raising money for cancer, only to be struck down in his cancer and succumbing to it before he finished his journey. So he decided right then and there he was going to do the same thing. He was going to do it for spinal cord research, and he was going to do it in his wheelchair, and he wasn't going to go across Canada. He was going to go around the world. So in 1985, he began his journey, and away he went on this wheelchair. Here's a picture of him, uh, young Rick Hansen at the time. And away he went, and he went to 34 countries. He uh, traveled 40,000 kilometers. It took him 40 months, and he wore out 94 pairs of gloves. And in the journey, he raised $26 million dollars for spinal cord research, and since then, he's raised another $260 million. And I'll never forget on the 25th anniversary of this event that he was being interviewed by the CBC, and they asked him the question about his injury so many years ago, and this is what he said. He said, my injury has defined me. The challenges I have faced because of it have made me a better person. I would not give up the experiences of my life for anything in this world, including the use of my legs. I think that's an extraordinary statement for any person to say. What he understood, that he did not succeed in spite of his adversity, but because of his adversity. And that's why attitude is everything. So there's this poor guy, he's on his deathbed, he's right at the end, his wife's by his side, and he says, honey, you've always been there for me. You were there when I fell off the roof and I broke both my legs. And you were there with me when I lost my job. And you were there with me when we lost the house. And you were there with me when we went bankrupt. And now you're here with me as I am dying and leaving this world. Honey, I have something to say to you. She said, what, dear? He says, honey, I think you might be bad luck. Clearly, I think that's funnier than you do. (laughs) Don't matter. So number one is the attitude is everything. Number two, action is essential. So one of the things we discover is attitude is only part of the picture, right? I mean, attitude is great. But if you don't act on that attitude, then you don't achieve anything. And so it is absolutely essential that we, I mean, we have, we have Joshua and Caleb, and they had this great attitude about going into the promised land, but what good would it be if they didn't actually go into the promised land? And so they acted upon it, and they went into the promised land. And we look all the way through Scripture. What if, what if David decided not to act? Sure, he felt he could take Goliath, but he went and he did it. He had to act on it. What would have happened? If Peter hadn't stepped out of the boat, if he had not acted, he would have never walked on water. If the man who was lame and lying on the cot, Jesus said, take up your bed and walk, what would have happened if he didn't stand up and take up his bed? He wouldn't have walked. And so what we see, and we know that this is a message on, on faith that I'm not, we're not going to do today, but you've heard me talk about this many times, that when it comes to faith, action is necessary because faith acts. 
And it was Stephen Covey who wrote in his book, and if you've never read it, you should, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he says this, act or be acted upon. I love that expression, act or be acted upon. Isn't that how life works? If you don't act, someone will act upon you. If you don't act, someone will act for you. Having said that, here's the proviso. We need to learn the difference between action and reaction. We need to act, not react. And one of the problems we have is we, we, we misconstrue the two, and we confuse the two. We have so many people reacting to so many things, thinking they're acting, when actually what they're really doing is reacting. And I think about Jesus, because Jesus walked on this earth. He had a lot of opposition. And did you notice he never, ever reacted? I love it. Sometimes he's being criticized, and, he, and it says, and he answered not a word. That's an amazing thing to me, considering he figured that out, and he wasn't even a married man. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, like the story of this kid who comes home from school. He says, Dad, Dad, I got, a, I got a role in the school play. And so his dad said, fantastic, what role? He says, I play the father of the family. And his father says, oh, well, maybe next year you'll get a speaking role. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> But I want to talk about how we react in our culture instead of act. I'm kind of going to take it from the other side here. Because, you know, when it comes to criticism, criticism is the lowest form of opposition. And it should bother you the least. It doesn't. Sometimes we make it as the biggest thing in our life, and it's not. It's the smallest thing. And we look at, we look at social media. I mean, really, have you noticed social media? I mean, not everything and not every person, but really, it's become this repository of these cowardly, spineless little toads that are attacking people who are actually doing something and criticizing them and what they did so they can feel better about themselves. And I think, you know what? Why would we ever react? to that? Why would we give it the time of day? Why are we not ignoring that stuff? You know, let me tell you something you may or may not know. I get a lot of fan mail (laughs) with the emphasis on fan. I get a lot of very nice things that people say, but I get some real doozies. And I'll tell you, I just love it when I hear it from the haters because it's always so entertaining. And you know, here's what I do. Honestly, true story. So if I'm having a bad day, let's say I'm a little discouraged, I will go to my file where I keep all of my mail, and I will look through a section I have on the hate mail from the haters. And I read it because it just entertains me so much. It is so funny. And I'll take it around and I'll show the staff. I'll say, look what this person went to all the trouble of writing. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I'll give you, here's my favorite. I'll give you one example. Absolutely true letter. Here's how it went. It went, dear, dear Pastor Mark, Uh, you look terrible on television. You look like a wrinkled mess, and you look like a crackhead or a drug addict. You make me sick. I don't know how your wife can stand you. (laughs) See how entertaining that is for me? I mean, how is that not funny? Who says that? Who says that to someone they don't even know? Who Who goes to the trouble of sitting down their keyboard to send that message to someone they don't know? How am I going to possibly take that seriously? How can I be possibly hurt by someone? I don't know who they are. They didn't sign the letter. I don't care what they think of me. Why would we care about what people we don't know and don't know us say about us? Right? Now, it's a little bit different when the criticism is closer to home. Am I right about that one? Yeah, I think so. So this is 100%. Not that every story isn't, but this story is 100% true, word for word. Here's how it went. 
So before my youngest daughter moved out and got married, we were sitting around the dinner table one night. She said something very sarcastic, and I just cracked up. I was killing myself laughing. And Kathy turns to her and says, Danica, whatever you do, don't turn out like your father. <laughs> and I said, Kathy, I'm sitting right here. She says, oh, don't take it personally. <laughs> not take it personally. You're talking about me. She says, oh, everything has to be about you, doesn't it? <laughs> you, can't, you can't really win. And, but you know, I hear something like that and I thought, this will preach someday. <laughs> this will preach someday. Uh, it makes me think of the story of Winston Churchill and Lady Nancy Astor. Na Nancy Astor was the, the very first female parliamentarian in British history. And here's a picture of her along with Winston Churchill. And she couldn't stand Churchill. Churchill was loud and he was brash and he was critical and he was cynical and he was bombastic. He had every, everything that she disliked. And one day she got so mad at him, she said, Mr. Churchill, if I was your wife... I would put poison in your coffee. To which he said, if I were your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> Here's what I think we need to remember, people. We do need to act, but we need to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Isn't that, isn't that what... Paul said, he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness. And unfortunately, we begin to think sometimes that people are our enemy, that people are our adversaries. And Jesus says, no, your, your adversaries are, are in heaven. These people on the earth, you're supposed to love them. And the ones that we call small e enemies, he said to love your enemies and to, to do good to those who hate you. They're not your true enemy. And sometimes we get confused and we react against them instead of loving them, acting in love and acting in goodness towards them. And he said the most peculiar thing in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he said this. He said, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on your way with them. And you read that and you say, why would I agree with my adversary? Why would I do such a thing? Now, understand, he's not talking about your adversary, the devil. He's talking about the adversaries we have in this world because he's saying they're not really your enemy. And a lot of times there are battles that we fight that we need to actually lose. We shouldn't have to win every battle. You don't even want to win every battle. Winning, winning a battle is not always a virtuous thing. You say, what on earth are you talking about? I'm talking about some battles you're better off losing so that you can win the war, the big picture. So, so I'll give you an example of this, for example. So I mentioned my book, A Greater Purpose, I, I, I wrote a few years ago. And uh, one of the things I did, I included this, this story about my family. Well, you know me, I'm kind of an open book, right? I mean, all my stories and all my experiences, they all end up in sermons, they all end up in books. And I, stole, I told a somewhat embarrassing story, not about me, but about my family that I grew up with. And it was a bit embarrassing, but it was true, so I put it in the book, and it was funny, so I put it in the book, you know me. And so then I thought, well, I'll give all my siblings a copy of the book because they'll just love it. And of course, they read it. Not everybody loved it. And in fact, one of my brothers was so 
mad at me that I had said these things about our family and, and people that at this point can't defend themselves. And he phoned me up and he said, what are you doing? You know, airing the family dirty laundry and you've, you've, you've written in this book. I mean, he had something to worry about. I mean, the book was going to be read by dozens of people. Right? <laughs> right? Right? And so, you know, I had to think about it for a moment. And I looked at that story and I decided what I needed to do. And I thought, I need to lose this battle. I need to agree with my adversary. So I phoned him up and I said, you know what? You're right. Uh, I shouldn't have included that story. And he says, what do you mean I'm right? <laughs> you know, people argue about being right, which is weird. He says, what do you mean I'm right? I said, no, you're right. I shouldn't have included that story. It was wrong to include that story. So we're going to a second printing and I've taken that story out and I've put in a different story. He says, you don't have to take, take it out on my account. And I said, yes, actually, I do need to take it out. You were right, and I was wrong. Can you just accept that you were right? And I was busy having a hard time losing this battle with him. But I did, and I changed it. Because here, here's the big picture. Here's the big question. What was more important, for me to leave that stupid, silly story in the book or for me to salvage my relationship with my brother? It's, a, it's an easy answer, isn't it? I mean, that's a battle I want to lose. That's what Jesus was talking about where he says... Agree quickly while you're on your way with your adversary. What's the point? Don't fight the battles that aren't important. Let's save our energy for the battles that do matter. Let's fight against our real enemy. Let's fight for our families in prayer and in faith and in character and in love. Let's fight for our children and fight for our friends and fight for our communities. Those are the battles that we need to fight, not wasting a bunch of energy on things that don't matter. And that's exactly what we see these men in the scripture doing. They fought the battles that really mattered against the true enemy. So the first thing is this, is that attitude is everything. The second thing is that action is essential. And the last and the final thing is this, is that achievement is eventual. See, if you'll do those two things, those two simple things, have a great attitude and act on what your convictions are, eventually you will have the achievement. Might not come instantly. I mean, like I said, it was 22 years before uh, Joseph finally had the fulfillment of his promise. It was 40 years uh, in the wilderness before uh, Moses finally got the children of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, you look at these stories in Scripture, but eventually you get there. And I want to leave you with this one final thought that I've said a couple of times through this message, and it's this. We do not succeed in life in spite of our adversities, but because of it. Now here's one of the stories I've told many times, so some of you might recognize it, but it'll so perfectly illustrate this message. That's the story of Kevin. Kevin was 10 years old when he was in a car accident and he lost his left arm right at the shoulder, lost his whole arm. And it was a tragic thing for this young boy to lose his arm like that. And the parents were grieving it and he was grieving it. It was a challenge. And after he'd healed up and stuff, they're trying to get him back to some sort of life of normality. And they said, why don't you go into a sport? And they're thinking, they're thinking, soccer? He's got two good legs. Soccer would be perfect. You don't even want your hands, let alone need them. He says, no, no, I don't want to play soccer. I want to do judo. They said, well, you don't have a left arm. He says, I want to do judo. So they took him down to the judo judo studio, and they said to the instructor, our son wants to learn judo, but he's got no left arm. The instructor looked for a moment and said, I can train him. 
So he started, and he started coming once a week, and he was working with them. And for whatever reason, the instructor was working separately with Kevin, apart from the rest of the boys and girls, and he was doing something with you, unique with them, and he was teaching them one move. He said, I'm going to teach you one move. And week after week went by, he said, why am I only learning one move? He says, trust me, you need to learn this move, you need to perfect this move, this is the most important judo move you can do. So then what happened was several weeks into it, months into it, they went to their first competition. So he said to Kevin, when you get out there on the mat, just do the move. So he goes out, first match, does the move, and he wins. Goes out, second match, does the move, and he wins. Third match, goes out, does the move, and he wins. He makes it all the way to the finals. But now he's in the finals against this humongous 12-year-old. You know what 12-year-olds can be like, right? So he's, he's, he's wrestling this monster of a kid. And the kid is just pummeling him. So much so that the ref wanted to stop the game. And the instructor said, no, no, don't stop the game. And he looked at Kevin. And he said, Kevin, do the move. Right? Now, Kevin knew. He only had one move. So he knew which move he was talking about. So Kevin mustered all the strength he had within him. He did the move. And he pinned the 12-year-old. Winning the whole championship. And there he was, sitting incredulously on the bench with his giant trophy on his lap. And he says to the instructor, I don't know how I managed to win this championship. And the instructor said, I'll tell you how you won. First of all, you have mastered or almost mastered one of the most difficult moves in judo. And secondly, the only defense against it is for your opponent to grab your left arm. We do not succeed in life despite our adversities. We succeed in life because of them. All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver him out of them all. Let's stand together, shall we? All right, we're going to do something. I hope you never get tired of it. And at the end of every service, we ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes because there are people in this room that are having an important moment. And the important moment that we always make time for is for people who do not know Jesus. See, this whole message is predicated on this one truth that if you love God... And if you love God, you will invite Jesus into your heart. And that's how you get into a relationship with God. And if you're here and you've never invited Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, I'm talking to you. I'm not asking you, have you been to church in your life or been baptized as an infant? That's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking, have you had the definitive moment where you've said yes and you've invited him into your life to be your Lord and your Savior? And if you have not done that, with every eye closed and every head bowed, and I won't call anybody forward, and you will not have to say anything publicly, but if that is you, will you let me know by simply raising your hand? Just take a moment, raise your hand, not calling you forward, not singling you out. Thank you at the back, thank you at the side. Anybody else want to join these folks? Just take a moment. Any other hands in the room? All right. I didn't see everybody's hands, but there were several. Let's uh, do this. We're all going to pray together, right? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the cross. You paid the ultimate price. You died for my sin. Then you rose again on the third day. You forever live to be my Lord. 
Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a Christian. And so I receive the promise that many are the afflictions of the righteous. But you will deliver me out of them all. I receive the promise that all things work together for good to me because I love God and I'm called according to his purpose and I thank you for it in Jesus name Amen let's give the Lord a shout shall we thanks for joining us we want to help you know God live free and find purpose to find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ go to churchoftherock.ca slash next You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.